are you interested in the difference between fairness and equity? What do you think about experimenting instead of trial and error? How can we use water more wisely? Stay tuned for answers from Jennifer George. What is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation? Then this is the right place. Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today, I will interview Jennifer George, commercialization expert and strategic thinker. We will talk about her vision for the future of cities, empathy, trial and error being so last century, equity, and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Jennifer George is an experienced business leader and founder with more than 20 years experience building new companies and products by connecting multi-stakeholder relationships in renewables, engineering, and ICT technologies. Jennifer has broad sector knowledge and an extensive network of relationships in industry, academia, government, and non-government entities throughout Australia and across the world. Jennifer specializes in big picture design thinking and offers proven leadership in orchestrating multi-million dollar strategies and building relationships to create new commercially viable opportunities across fields. Jennifer's pragmatic perspective is underpinned by an extremely broad range of practical, technical, and financial skills across a variety of sustainable technologies that enable her to identify position, and implement complexity into sustainable business solutions. And with that, Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. I highly appreciate your appearance on the podcast. Let's jump right in. What does the future of cities mean to you? Well, the future of cities, it is one of the biggest topics that we have to talk about, you know, in the world, really, because cities are an outcome of population growth. And the amount of cities and how carefully we now bring them together is really going to be an indication of how us empathy and our appreciation of the environment and the world in which we live. We can't help but grow. We're a huge population now, and eight, nine billion, we're getting up there. So we need to be able to say we're not just a predatory species. We are people who are empathetic with how a city is going to become part of the environment and empathetic of that environment and a holistic approach to what we do in cities. So cities will be digital, of course, because digital is fundamental to efficiency and being able to understand how we can use less energy and be less of a consumer and more of a creator of new resources and new ways of living is really key to how we're going to build that city. So there's a great opportunity, I believe, exists in what we decide to do for the future. Does this mean that the future of cities is a very open-ended question for you just right now? Yeah, I guess that's one way of putting it because there can be no guarantee despite all the ideas that are in the marketplace at the moment, you know, with renewables and with smart cities and technologies, et cetera. There's no guarantees that what's going to be adopted and what's not and how wise the people, the final decisions of the people will be. So you have to really start to say that we need to be all advocating for a little bit more wisdom of what things we choose to do in order to go forward. 
I mean, um, that, that hierarchy of data, information, knowledge, wisdom, we need to be right up there. <laughs> we need to be thinking about what is the best use of resources for our environment and for the place where we live. The best city structure might be completely different for if you live in a region or if you live in a urban environment or basically as population grows, those two environments are going to be coming together. So we've got to make sure that the actual landscape environment doesn't get squeezed out in between. We really need soil sequestration. We really need the space and the trees in between all of our urban centres. So we need to make sure that in our push for creating new buildings that we don't rule out or ruin our environment and we don't ignore that the requirement our soil and our growth then determines our climate and then we're going to be living with the consequences of climate change to an even higher extent let's go back first to what does the city mean to you because you said that cities are the outcome of population growth what is a city for you City could be something quite large, a large urban center, or it could be like a mining city, or it could be a university. So you look at it as a collection of individuals who often are gathered for a significant or similar purpose, and they then are brought together to, from an administrative and organizational point of view so that we can see them as an entity and get the most strength for them and the most benefits for them by seeing them as a group entity instead of a number of single people. You also said that empathy is a really important factor for your future vision. For me, Having empathy means that I can find my own, for example, my own comfort for the benefit of the society. And this is not really what I'm seeing in the society right now. Is there a tension in your understanding between the collective and the individual interests? And how can empathy help that, if at all helps that? So I guess the first part I've got to say is that I don't see empathy the same way as you do. I don't okay. see as empathy as a sacrifice. I see it as a level of understanding. You look at things from different points of view, that doesn't mean that one person is sacrificing anything for the other. So I was trying to see how different people, different stakeholders in the city would be reacting to the same. And for example, in the Lismore floods, you know, there'll be a position from the people who lived in the floods, the people, the factories that were closed, the farmers that lose their crops, all of those people have a different position. So by taking an understanding and empathizing with their position, then you can start to say, oh, well, that's their position. So therefore, the answer to what we need to provide needs to then provide something for them as well, for each person to have a future view but also for the whole city to have a future view. So understanding that the strength of the whole comes from each of the understanding of the individuals. I give you another example. When councillors want to reduce the car use in city centres and they say that we will not allow any parking in the city centre, but you can use the public transport to get in and out of the area the residents of that area, usually they say and shout very loudly that not in my area because I want to use my car and want to use my blah, blah, blah. Mm. So in this case, the society's needs are pushed back because of the individual needs. And in 
my view, the individuals understand what's happening and why the need is for reducing the car usage and carbon emissions. However, they are not willing to go beyond the understanding and make that step towards this reduction. So they're willing to follow it up to a point, but not to the point where they have to make a personal sacrifice. Yes. So that's why I say empathy and sacrifice is not the same thing. Fair enough. The idea of, let's just take that for an example, removing cars from a city centre. I remember when I was living in New York, you know, they took the cars out of the main precinct that goes outside 42nd Street and 6th Avenue there, started to put restaurants and cafes in there. And it worked out really well in the end. And the cars in the city for New York were so expensive to even park them or to get over the Verrazano Bridge or through the Holland Tunnel that actually it made huge economic sense for the person to the detriment of the city so that the city was losing out on quite a lot of revenue because the people weren't bringing the cars. So the decision was a sacrifice on both sides. And that's what I mean. Trying to see that there is an understanding, a point of view on both sides of development in the city. And there's a lot of stakeholders. You know, you can't just forget the homeless people or the people who are unable to afford a mortgage in a world that really revolves around money. So looking at a number of different points of view is the only way that we can build a fair and equitable city. Now, whether the city of the future is fair and equitable That's a bit of a question. I'm not sure whether the good guys or the bad guys or the good ladies or the bad ladies will win out in the end. I don't know. But the idea of being equitable and fair is very high on my agenda. What those terms mean to you? What does equity and fairness mean to you? Okay, so equity, I worked on Wall Street, so equity means money to me, (laughs) equity and debt. I've worked in 50 different industries. And so terms have different meanings in different industries, right? So The idea of being a fair and equitable society means that the rights of a citizen, to me, that each person is considered in the way the city develops in the future. They're not forgotten. You can't just forget one group of people and think, oh, you know, I built a digital twin and it's taking care of 90% of the population. Well, if you know that 10% aren't being taken care of, well, you should be going back and saying, well, what can we do? Or... Even better, you could start with the 10% that are usually forgotten and say, let's make sure that we integrate that into every level of our development so you can focus on the most ignored parts at the beginning and so you develop a better city plan by design or else you can overlay that at the end. And I much prefer doing it at the beginning. Thinking more holistically is what I do. It's got this kind of broad, crazy mind that works across a whole bunch of different industries. So really saying, well, if there are people that we, it's like a post-it note on the world, right? Let's just not forget about this thing. Let's not forget about the really important things that we must underpin the values that have to be in a city and check through each of the lists as we're building things. Have we got this thing? Have we mentioned that? Have we brought that in line? That's the way I think it should be developed. Equity and fairness means that the rights of citizens are the same. They're considered. Considered. They're equally considered is not the same because the needs of every different group is different. When you talk about how we need to include the ignored parts and then go for the majority, I will do the devil's advocate right now. So when in design, we, I mean, architects, for example, design for the worst case scenarios, 
that could create nightmares. So for example, in Melbourne, when there were the attacks on crowds, cars going into the crowds, yeah. mm-hmm. there was an upsurge on blocks the ballads. to protect the crowds. But they are not good design solutions. They are just protective because the worst case scenarios we have seen and we have to protect against that. Again, this is a design example. So the question is how we can create better cities for the ignored parts and then for the majority without creating nightmarish scenarios. So there's always going to be something that comes out of a disaster. There's something, you know, we can't plan how anybody thinks because the human individual can think about everything. So we can't design completely for that. However, we should not be designing for the case where everybody's skipping down the road and having a wonderful time, right? We have to be realistic and good design takes into consideration. And I'm not going to try and kind of talk good design with you because you're an expert and I'm a generalist. But the idea of design is looking for different scenarios and different options. And I want to give an example of what we might do in terms of better design. If a flood say, for example, Lismore floods was a disaster that happened, right? And if in response to that, we asked people, what could we do to do it better? How could we fix this? This is a disaster. This is a catastrophe. What could possibly be done? People in general can only draw on what they know. They can't come up with a solution that they don't know about. So for your solution about the bollards, You might know of lots of different beautiful ways, highly effective ways of putting that security in place. But in that moment, when they need a very quick decision, people are going to come up with the nearest thing that they know of. If we want to be a better designer of the future cities, we have to be constantly helping people by putting new ideas in front of them. So for example, in Lismore, where we're looking at floods, there was solutions that perhaps, you know, we could do with some better rain gauges, we could do with some better pumps, we could do with better communication, all of those downstream after effects. What do we do with the buildings now? All of our money, 90% of money from that region goes to repair, right? But what if we looked at it and said, well, actually, in design thinking, a flood is actually just an excess of water, And water could be used as a resource. And so what we need is a better way to capture the resource. And here's a few ideas. And once as experts in the field, we share those ideas with a variety of people, then those people who are stakeholders can evaluate a number of other options. And the other thing about that is once you start provoking or bringing forward good ideas of how things could be done, other people will chime in and say, oh, well, what about this? And you could do that too. So you can create a cascade of passion and empathy to start to build that new society or that new building or that new city rather than something that's just, oh, we can have a better way of knowing what disasters is going to happen. So digital twins and precision imaging and understanding what biosecurity is and being able to use all kinds of different technologies can potentially help us say, what scenario should we do? Should we do this or should we do that? And what's the cost of if we do this or that? How do we evaluate efficacy of these two options? And if we do it, how is it going to affect transportation down the road? Or, you know, everything has an opportunity cost. So once we start thinking digital, 
we can start saying, well, we've got the opportunity to try lots of solutions rather than just be stuck with that one single solution. It took so long to draw. It's a blueprint. Really, I had to do it with my slide rule. And, you know, we are committed mentally to that as soon as we've put all that time. But with a digital twin, you can actually start to say, okay, well, I have new information. Let's put that in and see if the output could be changed because of that new information. So what I'd like to see for cities and city planning is, you know, using a digital twin as an output rather than just a written report. It would be much better to have something that's proactive, that can be a document that can be added on through open source information or through other people's new understandings. So that empathetic understanding of their position they can start putting that in and suggesting, well, what if we look at that problem like this? That's where I see the future could be. But it's all about our need to educate a bit before we ask everybody's opinion. <laughs> we can't be like a stick on a river, you know, just guided around and everybody who pushes to the left or the right, we end up jammed up against the bank. We have to make sure that we have a clear purpose and a clear direction. Yeah. So many questions. It's really, really good. I enjoy talking about this subject. I'm so passionate about it. To be honest, it shows, which is awesome. Now, when I talked with city building professionals, architects, urban planners, and engineers, they were quite sad that although they see themselves as urban experts, for example, people are not really interested in their opinion regarding the future of cities. I am really curious whether you think that the experts, let it be urban experts as the designers said themselves or whatever experts are wanted in establishing the future of cities. So I have a different view of experts. I think we're all experts. Okay. We have to know, we have to bring out our inner expert. So we need to act with courage and bravery to put our position because our best future is going to be a collaboration of multiple points of view. And if we have someone saying, well, I put in my point of view, except no one will listen, they're going to be ending up with a very slanted point of view. So don't be afraid of joining the fracas of lots of voices. Hopefully, as our wisdom takes over, we'll have heard all these different points of view. Those people that are deciding don't always have the same approach as I do because, you know, it's easy for me when I've worked in a lot of industries to be not afraid of any other industry. But some people who have only worked in a specific area are uncertain of all of the way their information will be received. For me, I know that it's very similar in lots of ways. It's just that the acronyms and the vocabulary and the basic concepts are different. But honestly, we are really working with the fundamentals of how can we make life better for us all. That's nice to hear. And I completely agree that we are all experts in our lived experiences. And mm -hmm. those are really important part of the city. So let's go and <laughs> work together for the better future. Yay. Da, da, da. You said that future of the city is the biggest topic and there is no guarantee. However, you also said that that's my interpretation. Vision needs yep. to guide us in our daily actions. What kind of vision is this and how we can create such visions if the future is not guaranteed? Well, the future is the future and you can read any financial statement that says past performance is no guarantee of the future, right? We all know that the future is not guaranteed and that's the beauty of it. Where would we be if the future was going to be 
it's all set in concrete. We had no input in it. We had no way of changing it. It was guaranteed to happen exactly. But that's not the case. We have a unique moment in time. We have every one of our energy systems that is being reinvented, re-put together, fundamentally changed. Infrastructure, power infrastructure, the grid is the biggest infrastructure in the world. It underpins every city that we have. So if that's being reimagined, let's reimagine other things as well. Let's start, see this as an opportunity because it's not a cost. It's not, oh, well, we're going to have to switch to renewables instead of fossil fuels, and that's going to cost us a fortune. Let's take the opportunity point of view and say, well, that could be a great opportunity for us. How can we make that valuable for our communities? How could we make that valuable to cost-wise? How could we make sure that that provides the underpinning financing for our most needy in our community? So when we rethink, let's do that holistically rather than just in a small area. Like I was mentioned about Lismore, right? If you were to rethink it in terms of what are we doing with that flood, right? If it's water that could be reserved, if we said, well, okay, we could store some of that water. There's a tank in Western Australia that stores 80 million gallons of water, right? So you go, okay, we could store that in a number of places and we would have a reserve that would help us look after drought in the future. We could also use that to underpin our hydrogen because it's electrolyzer-based hydrogen needs water as well as power, right? So we could create a new industry and that means that Lismore would be a great place for it not a problem place. So once you start taking proactive actions to use the resources in a different way, you create opportunities for all of the different people that are there. That sounds amazing. That's what the opportunity is for everybody to be amazing. You know, it really takes courage to learn stuff and then to say what you think when you're not quite absolutely sure <laughs> and you're entering a new area where the terminology might be a little bit different and you might get held down by the crowd. You said some kind of term in the electric grid the wrong way and you go, oh, geez, maybe I shouldn't say anything in case I get one thing wrong. Remember that we all get one thing wrong. We all have to overcome that in order to get better. So getting wrong phase is always the first stage of learning. Coming back to almost the beginning of our conversation, you said that that kind of flow of data, information, knowledge, and wisdom is really, really important. And then you also mm -hmm. talked about that digital twin is a really good outcome, which you would like to see more in, for example, urban planning and developments. Now, mm -hmm. is digital twin enough as an outcome? Because Depends on the digital twin. You know, there's a whole range of digital twins. Some of them are just kind of sex instruments that look good and you kind of wonder, well, what was the purpose of that? I'm not really sure. But there's others that you go, well, actually, that could really provide us some real insight. So they're not particularly great, the digital twins. So then you look at them and you say, look, there's no value in them. But my position is if every city is unique, right? it's uniquely positioned in the environment, it has its resources, its pluses and minuses. They have close to train, close to transport, good weather, bad weather, vast lands where you can grow sorghum and other places where you can't grow anything. So identifying through a digital twin exactly what those rural, let's just say from a regional perspective, where those areas are and what their assets are, 
they can then potentially say, well, we can start to try and choose the best solutions for us. Now, that's important because currently we've got, oh, let's try hydrogen and we're just putting it somewhere. Let's do wave energy. And then the people who are making the wave energy decide that should be where it is. Now, cities need to be taking control. I don't mean necessarily legislatively, but going back to that point of knowledge and wisdom, they need to be knowing of the elements of all of the different kinds of technologies, not be afraid to learn them and not be brought in or enticed by the sexiness of making sure that we've got electric vehicles in our neighborhood. It has to be, how is it going to work here? And how could we optimize what we have as a community and as an environment to make a much better city and really suits us the best? Here, I'm very cautious about adding a layer of administration that delays everything by a couple of years because we already have too many delays. If we're going to meet some kind of deadline here, we have to be decisive. But the reality is the movement from data and information to knowledge and wisdom can be done quite quickly because you decide. You decide you want to know. So with the internet, you're then able to say, I want to find out what it would take to install an EV. And what's the problem if I put them onto the grid? And if they come in and we have lots of these in our community, is that the same as if we have one or two? So how is that going to affect our grid? So asking those basic questions has to be part of our process. It can't be that we just say, oh, yeah, let's do it. You know, let's have an EV. Yay, yay, I'll charge it. And, you know, I'll use the power from my house and charge the car, use the car as the battery. Figure out if it works first. <laughs> and everyone be bold. Take responsibility of the learning. Embrace the wisdom and be proud to stand up and say, I know this. And if someone says, actually, you don't, there's this bit as well, you say, great, I know it better. Don't be afraid of putting yourself out there to be knocked down. Australians typically knock down people pretty well. It's one of our best capabilities because the tall poppy thing is quite well known in Australia as how we operate. We knock down the people who stand up high. But I'm going to say to you, it's time that all stopped. It's time that we all as a group of individuals stood up and said, I know this. I am proud to be able to say that I understand this, that how cities work. I understand how renewables work. And this is the best solution. And do that quickly rather than asking for a long protracted compliance study of getting some expert to do it and then an expert who's a general consultant and then an expert who's a building consultant and then an expert who's an <laughs> Put it on a digital twin and let's just model it and be able to see, does it work? And put in the AI and the scenario around the digital twin to be able to say, show us where it doesn't work. This is what we want it, how we want it to work. So what do we need to do in order to improve that? Making our mistakes, you know, trial and error. So last century, <laughs> we need to make our life much more efficient. So efficiency is really the key to sustainability. Let's not waste our time or our money. Money has an opportunity cost. If it's spent in one direction or the other, we need to be aware that the other direction is missed out if we've wasted it. So making sure that we have looked at all of the different options ahead of time. Again, I worked in Wall Street, right? So we used to work with all the pension funds, the big pension funds, and they'd have what they called a 
fiduciary responsibility, but basically the idea that you had to have some outside compliance, some outside entity giving you a view on the investment to say that it was safe. We've looked at that and outsourced that to consultants. And I'm a consultant too. So I'm actually saying something that's against my own business here. But the idea is we should be then saying, from a knowledgeable point of view, we're not going to outsource knowing. We need to know first. And then we need to ask the questions of all of the people. And then we need to be able to say to them, you know what, that's not enough. Let's try some other pathway, but we can't continue. We will run out of time for the environmental purpose that we have to achieve if we keep procrastinating and we end up with a compliance report that is 150 pages long and we go, okay, that's great. Yeah, that's a fantastic outcome <laughs> or that no one reads <laughs> or very few people read or people can't read generally. You know, we need to be able to say that this is the outcome. This is how you see it. This is how can we can build on it. And this is how people can understand it. The stakeholders can say, well, what about this? And you go, okay, yeah, let's model that in. Let's try that. Let's see what, how that works. I may have had a misunderstanding because... When you said that you would like to see digital twin as an outcome, for me, it didn't translate necessarily as a tool for use it in the future. But in your understanding, digital twin is not just something we create and then, yay, we created it, but we need to use yeah. it to test scenarios, right? If you don't use it, it's just a simulated model like AutoCAD or something like that. It's just a model. A fundamental description of a digital twin is it has to be useful has to be useful in the operations of the way you can see and understand things in not in real time, but in progressively over time. It, sometimes it will be real time. So you'll be able to model lighting or the interaction of different elements in a building, say, the CO2 too high or whatever it is, and go and open a window. That kind of real time could be part of it, but you have to do the modeling intervals based on the needs and the scenarios that are going to be needed for actually its use. It has to be used. It's not just the set and forget. <laughs> that sounds reassuring, to be honest. Otherwise, it's a waste of money. Now, you also talked about how technology can enhance efficiency with the digital mean or just with data and providing knowledge based on data. Can efficiency be enhanced without technology? No, always. I mean, the creative thinking, the seeing things from a different perspective, it's really the joint, the unification of creative thinking and technology. So I commercialized tech. I'm commercializing a brain computer interface that uses photonics at the moment, right? So photonics is light and photonics has already made telecommunications faster, better, more rapid. So somebody, the researcher in this case at a university, was creative enough in order to think of that, see the problem. And then I think I recall that he built a very large, not a very large one, but a large-ish one. And then someone came along and said, can you do that at the four millimeter level? Can you make it small enough that we can use it in, in surgery? And so he did. And which kind of gave him a whole range of new problems to face. He then can use photonics. The value of photonics, of course, is that it's faster and the signal you get is clearer. So electronic signals get blurred and you get cross talk between the signals when they get too close. But if you use photonics, it's a clear beam of light. And so you don't get that cross talk. So if you make an integrated chip in the world and you use electronics, it has to be done with etching and acid, etc. But a photonics process is very much better for your environment. And we could, you know, kind of combine our mutual interests 
by then adopting new technologies and new ideas. So that's the area where I operate. I know mean, you can see I've got a probably a bit warped sense of the world, but I live on the cutting edge. And there's always a chance that you get your hand cut off in that world. So it's always a bit dangerous. Australia, 3D printing, rethinking the possibilities. Some people say, oh, yeah, 3D printing, I'm just going to make a little thingy, a little doodad for a novelty use. You know, we can 3D print cars, we can 3D print metal, we can 3D print medical devices, drones, anything. There's a whole plethora of things that we can 3D print. And all of those things need software and all of those things need people talent. And so where you need people, where you have people talent, then you need a city a group of people joined together to have a particular lifestyle. You just mentioned dangers. What are your three biggest fears or concerns regarding the future of cities? Sometimes a little critical of our pace of change. If we procrastinate too much, if we send things out, basically we need to have made some environmental change by 2030. Otherwise, the environmental impact by we're trying to get by 2050, we won't have the impact. We can't go at the December 31st on 2050 and go, da-da, we did it. We've had no impact. <laughs> we have to make sure that we are implementing our decisions quickly and correctly. So my biggest concern is we will go off on a tangent after things, after ideas, without really considering how they work. How do EVs work? How does hydrogen work? How are we going to get to green ammonia? Is green steel really the pathway we need to go? All of these questions have to be understood in terms of the context of real value of the future, not just financial value not just check the box, my shareholders will love me because we've gone after green steel, but have we really addressed the need for a good climate solution? Biggest fear is that we'll get to the deadline and we'll have done not enough and we'll have done a lot of the wrong thing. Now, you look through history, people pursue with great gusto bad ideas. <laughs> and often if there's no consequence, that it doesn't matter. The consequences of the failing stock market and the global financial crisis, they were major, but it wasn't catastrophic. The world continued. And I lived in New York at that time. So I can tell you they were more catastrophic for people who lived in New York than they were than anywhere else. But if we don't do something valuable here, if we don't make the right decisions, and again, this goes back to investing. If you've already invested in something and it's the wrong idea, you're going to spend at least five years hanging on to that idea hoping that it's going to be the right one. So that evaluation time at the beginning of the understanding, going to wisdom and understanding all of the various parts and pieces of that decision before it is implemented is absolutely critical. Because once you've put that in play, you've spent the money, the opportunity cost has been determined. You're not going to go with something that might help the hungry, help the poor and the hungry and the people of the community. You're going to go after this, right? We're going to put in this new energy solution or whatever it is. It's always another option. So you've made that decision. So you're going to at least spend five years defending that decision, even if it's wrong. And it's going to take you 10, you know, five years to even figure out, is it wrong? We need to spend the first year and a half at least super getting up to speed on all of the knowledge we need to know to be able to put together the values of a city. So we need to be brave and risk being wrong, but we need to be able to do that quickly, sort through the ideas, listen to all the others, other people, be empathetic to their different understanding, and then bring that on board and then say, this is the decision. 
what do you think of it? They'll say, oh, well, you know, maybe you might want to tweak it because now we're all on a similar area of knowledge. And I'm not saying everybody, you can't get everybody in a conversation. That's the biggest way to kill a decision. But, you know, get a group of people who can represent different types of stakeholders and help them to be guided along and to be educated of some of the options. And then you can show them in your meeting process that they've been heard. People don't necessarily need to always be part of this decision. They don't, don't need to win, but they do need to know that they've been heard. So if we can help that, that would be also very beneficial for our cities and democracies of the future. What are the three biggest opportunities regarding the future of cities for you? The opportunity to rebuild, to change our current fossil fuels into renewables is the biggest opportunity that we have had as a society since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. We are really rethinking everything. And what things we're not rethinking, we need to rethink just to incorporate what we're trying to bring in. Transportation. Looking at autonomous vehicles, yesterday in the Smart Cities event, we were talking about flying cars that they were planning for the Olympics here in Queensland. So it is all there. And if you have flying cars, obviously you need a multi-dimensional plan of the city and you need to have a digital grid to understand where people are flying and all the different layers that we currently have in the high level of the plane layer, but we then need it in a central layer suitable for that kind of vehicle. All of that, huge change. Autonomous vehicles, just generally on land, 3D printed vehicles, new kinds of production. We have never had this amount of opportunity for learning and becoming excellent because the whole world is reshaping at the same time. So Australia has an opportunity both in renewables because we have space. Other countries don't have space. So we can start to look at how solar panels and we can do agrivoltaics. So that's agriculture underneath the solar panel. We can look at different kinds of options that are only open to people that have space. So we can do that. Autonomous vehicles. Australia has a very obedient population. <laughs> we do as we're told. I remember when Barack Obama came to visit to Brisbane, they told the population of Brisbane to stay out of the city for a while. There was a big headline of a ghost city. We did so well, as we were told, that people are going, do you have any people in the city? <laughs> so we are people that knows how to do what we're told. That means that if we have autonomous vehicles, people aren't going to go rushing out on the street. And like, you know, in New York, you know, the people rule the streets, not the cars. But in Australia, people follow the rules. Perfect environment for us to build a autonomous vehicle world where there's a lot less things going on. All of that, telecommunications going from 4G, 4 point something G to 5G, and then finally to 6G, it will all happen in the next 10 years. So Everything, every aspect is an opportunity. We can look at it for, oh, my God, everything's changing. Oh, it's so terrible. Or we can just say, wow, we could sit here and be on the front line. We could be making all of the devices that are needed for the future. Consider this. If we were to say, well, okay, we don't like robotics. They're going to take all of our work away, right? That's one result. But if we said, huh, the world is changing to robotics on a very large scale, what about we learn to be masters of robotics and that we then export our knowledge on robotics to the rest of the world? So what happens if we say that, you know, oh, we don't like robotics, what's going to happen in five years' time? The price pressure is going to make us adopt robotics. And so what will we naturally do? We'll say, oh, let's get the company coming from the U.S. and 
they can come in and be our expert and then we will use their robots and we will export, we'll basically offshore all of our shipping and warehousing knowledge to another country. Instead of that, we could actually say, let's take it on early. Let's embrace new knowledge and become the experts. And then when people want to do it in another country, whether it be robotics or anything, right, when they want to do it, they come to us and we say, no problem. That's what we do. We help each other here. But, you know, we're sensible business people. We also do it for money. <laughs> but it's about being the driver of the train instead of just the passenger, especially in communications. Australia is considered as a, a consumer market. We don't have any R&D here from the communications industry. It's done offshore. If we can find an area in this, all these new things that are happening where we can start to say, yes, we are going to excel in this area, this area, and this area. And not only that, we are going to be the people who are exporting the talent and the end result to the world. And that's how we're going to make our money. And to your point, you said earlier about a vision. That's my vision, the vision where we are able to drive our own future. We can't be the people who don't drive the train. We don't want to just be the ticket holders. And hopefully someone will give us a ticket on the train. For a fair price. Is this someone giving us a ticket or is it we saying we are on the train and we are doing it? We are doing it. That's what we're saying. That's what I hope we're saying. That's the opportunity for us to do. The, my biggest fear, obviously, you know, when you say, what are your strengths and your weaknesses? Well, they're obviously the opposite. One's the opposite of the other. So my biggest fear is that we don't end up driving the train. We end up as a non-R&D society. We've got no other thing other than a consumer. We don't have manufacturing. The opportunity for 3D printing, we don't need to build out huge manufacturing. If we embraced it now, we could actually set up. We've got some great talent in all of the universities. They've already come up with great designs. So let's start building that out as well. I'm not so committed around quantum. I still think it's going to be 10 years away as it's been 10 years and 10 years before that and 10 years before that. But I am very hopeful that photonics will be a new direction for us. We can 3D print that. We can do a lot of things if we start to all collaborate and work with our wisdom. We've got so much knowledge here. We've got bad commercialization. I'm a commercialization person. So We've got to turn everything around in order to do systems thinking and design thinking. We, we don't say, oh, that's a problem. We say that's the strength. So we've got all this great research there. Then let's try and find a new way to bring it out so that it can be commercialized better. Working on ideas to do that. Is Australia shifting towards this kind of we are driving change instead of being the victims of it? Well, it's hard to make generalizations, but I'd say in there's pockets of both sides of that here. Mm. There's people who don't realize, they say that they want to be part of driving the train, but they don't. When you get into a rut of just pointing out what's wrong, we need, we need more workers, we need more of this. Australia can't go forward unless we have a million more technical workers. Looking at backwards, as you start to say, that this is the way we should go forward. Then people will start to say, actually, that's a good idea, but what about you do it like this instead? And what about you add this to it as well? And we can make that more economically viable if we do that. The vision of the future really will drive the way we start to change. And my fear is that we are stuck in that rear-looking view and we're not 
putting forward those FRIOs that help people to think of the future. For example, I've learned about 50 different industries. So the way I do that is I just simply learn the basics. I learn the acronyms and the concepts and the vocabulary, just 20 few words of each topic. And then you start to read a couple of papers, understand that you read all the PhD papers, right? But then let everybody else teach you. Because as soon as you don't say, oh, you do architecture, do you, Fanny? Oh, I don't know anything about that. So let's talk about football. So as soon as you say, Fanny, you know about architecture. Oh, what do you think about this? Or, you know, what's the main trends in that? And if you know a little bit of vocabulary, then you can start to have a great conversation. And you will teach me about architecture. So if you do that, if we can start to learn about all the different areas, well, then we're going to have an easy pathway to both show empathy and build new knowledge. And we've become more brave because we've actually had a conversation about a new topic that we don't know. So it all kind of works together. And that's what I mean when I work across all these different industries. I know that you can do that because other people will teach you. Is enough to create these information network or is there a next step? What you want to do is, in my mind, in what I do with Nakudu is I then connect all those people for my information network. And then I'll come up with proactive ideas of how to then use all those ideas and create ideas that people didn't really, they may have thought of before, but they didn't have an organization structure for. So I'll call a number of my contacts. I've built thousands of contacts over the years. I call them up and I say, look, we're working on this. Are you on board? Would you like to do that? Would you like to contribute some money? You know, whether it be a digital twin for a regional city or the Regens program that we're working on to build new networks of workers across Australia, that all happens because you have a network of people who know and trust you because you've treated them with respect and you understand their position and you've kind of protected their knowledge and their reputation as you've talked to everyone collectively and created value for different people as well. So I worked on a project with long duration energy storage. That's one of the biggest problems with the renewables. When you use lithium, it gets more and more cost prohibitive if you need to have larger and larger systems. So then that's when you start to use water and hydro-based products. So we are able to use our network in order to introduce people to new technologies and introduce people to new potential investors and people who can help to pull a project together for a community. It all works together once you start having a, a weight of knowledge and that wisdom, the wisdom of it. this could work together. Everybody signs on if it's a really good idea. Because everybody at heart wants to do the right thing. Remember, I talked about looking after the different elements of society. Everybody wants to do that. Whether they do it right, you know, maybe they do, maybe they don't, but they want to do it. And so if you can start to put together the backbone of a project that helps them to be able to achieve the goals that they're trying to achieve, then that's a good thing. Does everybody want to look after each other? Yeah, and people skip down the street and going, la, 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 la. <laughs> no. <laughs> but some people see looking after each other as if I look after somebody else, I look after me less. But the reality is that if we look after somebody else, we also look after ourselves better. Future growth is going to be that recognition that collectively all levels of society have to be functioning and we can't have homeless people everywhere 
and then to say, well, we've looked after the top 1%. Yay, that's great. That's not going to work because the whole economy will not work. Renewables, they won't be able to be customers. I mean, Henry Ford did it when he said he paid his people that worked on an assembly line and he said, okay, well, then they can afford to buy a car and I'm making cars and so they can afford to buy my product. I mean, that's ultimately a circular economy, right? We make sure that all of the different parts work together, whether it be the economic markets or the ability to look after the waste and reprocess it, to upcycle it to things of greater value. All of that is part of what's possible. We just have to put thought way back, maybe 35 years ago, I was a teacher. And one of the things I notice is that it's a, the difference between an A and a B is very small. It's just thought. Thinking and being able to articulate what your thoughts are. That's it. That's all it is. It's easy to do the night before when the dinner's being called and you can put together a B if you're a smart person. But you know what? If you just take two or three nights and put it together, it's not that it's not possible for us to have a better society. It will just take a bit more thought and a little bit more time for us to look at the various stakeholders and to be able to understand where everything fits together. Like I say, when you talk about different topics, you can't expect to get every word right. If you're building a city, you can't expect to get everything right, but you shouldn't be drawn in by the sexy kind of facts about a city or about what we're going to do. It has to be underpinned by knowledge and wisdom, and we have to be able to say, let's defer to this person or that person to try and get a bit of a perspective, but let's not take eight months or appeal to somebody who gets paid by time. You want to appeal to someone who can give you the right opinion. You want to make sure that you have multiple opinions that you can get quite quickly rather than always having to wait like eight months for a full report. That way, then you can improve your results and you can also hasten your results. Jennifer, you have been very generous with your time. We are getting (laughs) to the end of the interview. But what is your role in establishing the future of cities? Well, I have lots of roles. So in terms of I'm the chair of IT268 for Standards Australia for their smart cities and communities. So that's an official kind of role. I'm the CEO of the Nakuti Network. And so that is a network that proactively makes projects across the whole range of Australia. So being able to say, how do we pull, you know, whether it be a bushfire or a flood solution, or it might be a digital solution that might just make retailing better, whatever it is. I proactively work on those solutions. And then also for a city, I work on, like I said, the cutting edge. So looking at how we can better integrate the wisdom and the extreme knowledge of our researchers and being able to bring them towards commercial viability and make sure that they get there quicker and in a much more efficient way. So sometimes people believe that that part of the process of being a new technology is you have to languish in the doldrums for a long time, right? The idea is, you know, you got to do your time to make the dime. That's not the truth. If you have a great idea, you should have somebody who can be your advocate and a network of people who can help you to find those people who will invest in you and who will support you in terms of making a prototype or funding a pilot or helping you get a grant, all that kind of stuff. And that's where I work in all the cities. So building the different point of view, having the creative perspective and making that into a very practical outcome is how I work. I have a very broad reach across the future. I'm very hopeful. I'm a bit older and you probably hear that in my voice, but I'm not kind of ancient. But they always say the person who plants a tree that they won't always be able to sit under. 
the leaders of our world. So I want to be a leader. I want to be able to envisage other people sitting under the tree of knowledge that I have helped to cultivate and brought lots of branches together in order to make the future. My before last question is, what is Regen? Yeah, Regen, like R-E hyphen Gen. So it's about the regeneration of Australia. It's about bringing together the teams of workers we need, the training we need, the answers to our requests for jobs and skills. Last year, we were all about this is what we need. And I'm like, pick me. I know what we need. I know what we can build. I know what we have to do. Don't spend all the time doing lots of seminars. Listen, I'll be happy to tell you. So Regen is a program started when we were, I'm a director for a net zero stack. And that means there is a group of people who do regenerative projects, renewable projects. So we're looking at how we could create a circular economy that was really based around the idea of repurposing all the various parts of our regional area, right? So we started with mine tailings, looking at how we could reuse those mine tailings, how we could upcycle them to make them maybe into a local product that would make local bricks. So the tailings obviously come from the coal mine that's closing down. So what will we do with the actual power station? And in the U.S., they're closing those. And I saw this idea that they're going to be, you know, a few of them are being proposed as data centers. And that's interesting because the data centers are a big idea at the moment. And especially if you put the renewable energy beside the data center, that's really a good thing for Australia. But then I said, well, okay, if you have data centers, well, why not have a group of workers, tech workers, so that answers all of our needs for our million tech workers that we have to build our future economy. And in order to do that, we need to have training and we need to have a safe place that is multicultural, that people can come in and be sure that their technical capabilities will actually be valued and used, you know, so that we don't kind of bring people in on the premise that they are going to get a job here, but they can't always get a job. And we wanted to do them in the regions because regional visa is easier and better to get if you work in a region, but there's never any tech jobs there. So building the center for tech jobs, but then making into a network. So instead of having just one, let's have 18, one in each of the cities connected to all the universities. We then make it so it's commercializing and using this brain trust that we have in the university. We create a direct pathway for university students to stay where they live, where they like. And they can work in that area, but also we can say to somebody, say, who lives in America, you know, that maybe got laid off from one of the tech companies, come and work over here. You know, when I was in America, I lived there for 20 years. So people would say to me, you know, I'd love to go to Australia. It's on my bucket list, but, you know, you can't do a lot with 10 days holiday. (laughs) My hypothesis is, is don't come for 10 days, come for a year. Still continue to work from your home. But work in all these regen centers and continue to work where you have promotion, you have training, where you have a community of like-minded people, where you are working on jobs with purpose. So we're building the sustainable skills and the technology integration of the future. And then you live in one place, might be at the beach, and then you go to another place during the winter and do the snow. And then you go to another place, probably another beach because that's what we've got. Or maybe to one of the premier wine areas like the Hunter Valley or Barossa Valley or Margaret River. So we create this, if you can work from home, where would you like your home to be? And so we kind of then answer that call. And so they still continue to work in the States for that company. But the chief remote officer now says, well, you know, you can work from Australia. There's two hours of time is the requirement that we need for working remotely. It's just that you're able to attend conference calls. You have two hour window of opening 
and you can work through there and then you can still travel all around Australia. So this multi-level kind of idea that we developed with the net zero stack is that each thing by itself doesn't necessarily work, but if you put it all together, you have a diversified product offering that has a smaller number of people working in different kinds of businesses and we're working on a grant for that. So hopefully by the time this airs, we might have been lucky enough to win then. Jennifer, thank you so much for your answers and your time. I could ask you for hours about city-states and green steel <laughs> and the nuclear energy and whatever. But the last question is, do you have any closing comments or requests for the audience? Yeah, my closing comment is be brave. And my closing request is that we all, all of your listeners, really start to know the topics that they are advocating for and what it will take to actually deliver them, not just the headlines. Dig in, be brave, learn that topic, and then speak up and ask questions. Will it work? How will it work? And how can it work for me as my region or my community? So that when we have our future, we're building a future of knowledgeable people who know what they're doing. Thank you so much, Jennifer. You're welcome. Thanks for your time too, Ben. It was really interesting to hear from Jennifer about people being experts in their own rights. Not to mention her description for digital twins. Kevin Cotterier talked about digital twins in episode 75. You can find out more about Jennifer online. All the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Jennifer's approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the WTF4Cities.com website where the transcripts and show notes are available. You can also subscribe on the website not to miss any new episodes and leave some feedback. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in. What is the future for cities podcast?